The U.S. Agency for International Development does all of its work overseas. It engages with local grantees or contractors to do the work in a particular country. Now USAID is launching a new strategy for what it calls A&A, Acquisition and Assistance. For details, we turn to its Deputy Administrator for Management and Resources, Paloma Adams-Allen. Ms. Adams-Allen, good to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. So there is an acquisition and assistance strategy. Tell us about this. What is it that you need to update and give us an overall view of what this strategy actually looks like? It seems central to everything USAID does. Thank you. It indeed is central to everything that we do. USAID routinely launches strategies, strategies for improving how we help partners around the world, strategies to mitigate and adapt to climate change, to promote equity and equality, strategies for building a more diverse and equitable workforce. So strategies guide everything that we do. And each of these strategies envisions the USAID that partners more directly with local actors and opens up the agency to more partners in the United States as well. And so we want to move beyond not just where we work and who we work with, but the strategy outlines how we work. And that is really a major part. It is guidance for how we're going to work into the future to deliver on our life-saving mission. So assistance ties directly to acquisition because you have to acquire the means locally to do the assistance. Precisely. So acquisition is about purchasing the goods and services needed. It might be food that you need to support people who are suffering in Turkey and Syria following the earthquakes. It might be tents. It might be beds. It might be services and goods that we need here for our staff and for our teams, while assistance is a funding that you provide to the organizations who work with us to run programs to respond to humanitarian crises, et cetera. So we need both sides. And these are just the tools that we use to get the resources that we get from Congress to deliver on our mission. Now, the agency has been doing this for a long time. So tell us what is the impetus for updating the ANA strategy? This is our second ANA strategy, I understand, in many decades. And the last one was drafted in 2018. And it was just a different time. We really needed a new strategy to think about how are we going to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic and the impacts, economic, social, public health impacts. We also had, you know, the, the strategy includes a big focus on bolstering USAID's ANA workforce. Those are the people who are responsible for managing these resources and making sure that we are using them responsibly. Partners are using the resources responsibly. So the strategy also looks at bolstering that workforce that had really dwindled because of hiring freezes and other things. And finally, the Biden administration came in with a focus on empowering the federal workforce writ large, making sure that the assistance that we provide is better localized, i.e. we're working with more local organizations and directly with them. And so the strategy looks at what did we need to do to reduce barriers to local organizations working more with us, or just to have a broader partner base overall. So reducing bureaucracy, slashing administrative burdens, and opening up the agency to a wider cross-section of partners. I mean, it sounds like a big challenge there then would be to make sure that you maintain accountability over those local operators because they're in all sorts of nations and all sorts of places that aren't exactly the same as doing business with well-known companies in the United States. Indeed. I mean, I will say just to be clear, more than 80 percent of our funding goes to U.S. organizations. So we would be taught we we're talking about just increasing the amount that, that goes to local organizations. But without question, one of the reasons that we really need to bolster the workforce is that they are stretched thin. These are the members of our workforce who make sure that projects are designed appropriately, that they're funded appropriately, that our resources are used appropriately. And I will give you a stat 
that will be a little bit shocking, but you know, on average, a contracting officer in USAID is responsible for obligating about $100 million. That is compared to say approximately $11 million per contracting officer, say at the Department of Defense. So if your teams are that stretched, there's a lot of pressure on them to make sure that there's also proper oversight. So truly bolstering the workforce. And then we are looking at, you know, it, it can feel like bureaucracy is better oversight, but not necessarily. So how to streamline how we work so that we free up everybody's time to do better oversight. And what would some examples of streamlining mechanisms be, do you think? Well, there are a couple that we're kicking off right now. And in fact, I will say, while we've just launched the strategy, we have been doing (laughs) a lot of this work. And so it includes, I'll tell you two things that we're doing. One is to allow local organizations to actually be able to even apply for funding at USAID. We are allowing them to submit concept papers as opposed to a hundred page proposal, right? Our contracting officers would have to go through, you know, 50 to hundred page proposal. Now they can look at a five page proposal and decide whether this makes sense for us. They can also submit them in their local languages and we're putting in place translation to make sure that they can submit and we can review those documents appropriately. So that just reduces the burden on the workforce. We have launched crucially a new platform called Work With USAID. And that is designed to, frankly, acknowledge that those who know how to work with us have a leg up because they know how to navigate the processes. And so work with USAID opens up the door for any organization to register with USAID, to learn about how to partner with us, to make sure that they have access to all of our training sessions, all of our outreach. So all of these are intended to reduce bureaucracy, reduce pressure in our teams, and make sure that they have more time and there are less burdens on them. We also want to reduce the burdens on our part, current partners and potential partners who really, I think, rightfully complain that our systems are creaky and that our bureaucracy is heavy and it makes it hard for them to be responsive and to act as quickly as they need to in moments of crisis. We're speaking with Paloma Adams-Allen. She's Deputy Administrator for Management and Resources at the U.S. Agency for International Development. And I would think that the degree of simplification of the application must also depend in some part on what it is you're buying, say if you're buying food supplies versus engineering services for a new water station somewhere. One's way more complex and prone to problems than the other. So is that kind of calibration built into the new strategy also? I would hope so. I will say in general, in cases of sort of humanitarian assistance, we really surge as much support as possible to the bureaus that are responsible for getting help to folks. And so one is just to have more streamlined processes in those cases, but also to make sure that the minute the earthquake hit, for instance, in Syria or Turkey, we start scanning what partners do we have, what partners do we need to get assistance as quickly as possible. And our contracting officers I have one instance that I'm thinking of right now, the White Helmets, a local Syrian organization, and it's an emergency response organization that operates in the areas that were impacted. And we immediately saw that we needed to be able to work with them quickly to get them resources, to purchase ambulances, you know, to get support to folks, for instance. And so we acted in two days and something that would have taken us on average about 40 days to stand up a project with them to get the resources they needed. And they saved, we were able to save over 2,000 people. So we do calibrate depending on the nature of the emergency. But, you know, I would love to say that it is easier to fund a small project than a large project or large procurement versus small procurement. But in some cases, I don't know that our systems were that flexible. So that's something that we're really trying to do. Because the strategy does mention cultural shifts needed for engagement. And 
at least everywhere else, it's certainly in DOD that you mentioned, the contracting officer culture is a little stodgy. And so when you talk about culture change, do you mean not just for COs, but for other people within USAID? For both. I think some of it is contracting officers, which is making sure that they are comfortable being a part of the design process for projects, as well as, you know, the sort of rigor that they bring to making sure that it's good design. So they need to understand the problem that we're trying to solve and be a part of the full process, which we don't always do very well. So that's one of the things that we're trying to push forward, which is we want to make sure that it's collaborative and that our ANA workforce is working very closely with our technical staff and with our colleagues overseas in the field and feel full ownership and understanding for the types of projects. And I think that streamlines the bureaucracy that ends up happening if they come in a little bit later in the process. But I think the big cultural shift is to think about instead of sort of going to our default processes, always questioning it. Is this the fastest we could do this? Is this the most efficient way that we could do this? Are we being the most creative, like understanding how crucial this function of the ANA function is to USA being able to deliver on any part of its mission? Without this function working, we cannot do anything that we are asked to do by Congress or by our president or on behalf of the American people. And the new strategy has three basic objectives, workforce enabled, equipped and empowered, streamlined and effective ANA integrated throughout the agency's development approach, more diverse set of partners. Do you have timelines and metrics for these objectives? Well, we definitely have timelines. This strategy is a five-year strategy. And as I said, we have actually started implementing components of it. And one of the big things we've started implementing is on the workforce side which is we are surging as much of new positions as we can to grow the contracting officer particular backstop. We are also looking at short-term hiring mechanisms to help, as I said, in those surge moments. So we have started a lot of that. Staffing is challenging. That depends on when we get resources from Congress and how. But our goal is to continue to grow that backstop in particular. So I would just say that has started. There is an implementation plan that we have shared with partners and everybody to give us feedback, essentially. And, you know, that includes a range of milestones for how we plan to hit all of these objectives and when we think we will be able to hit those objectives. I feel a sense of urgency, so I want us to get to all of it in a year, but it is a five-year strategy. Paloma Adams-Allen is Deputy Administrator for Development and Resources at the U.S. Agency for International Development. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having us. So grateful for the time. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the ANA strategy at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. 
It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Looking Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Looking Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and 
bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. (laughs) 
So that's sort of the way that's sort of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.